All right, we're continuing our journey through Ephesians, and this morning we're in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. And we're actually coming to the end of a section that is called the eulogy. Verses 3 through 14 are called the eulogy. I don't know if you're interested in that, but there's a piece of information. And uh, so we're going to end this section, and uh, in next week begin in ver- verse 15. I don't know if you've thought about directions. When people give directions somewhere, here's the idea of giving directions, is that you're able to direct somebody where they need to go. That's the goal, is to give directions so somebody can get to where they need to go. And sometimes when you get directions from people, you get different kinds of directions. Like some people give directions in very detailed fashion. You go up to Main Street, turn right. Go past Mango, go past Peach, go past Fig Street, and then you want to turn right on a Pine Parkway. Look for 123 Pine Parkway. It's the red door with the brass knob, and the door has two nicks in the lower right-hand corner. Don't worry about the welcome mat. It looks like it's askew. It's not askew. We make the front edge parallel to the sidewalk, not the back edge parallel to the door. It's just how we do it. So you're like, you know, a little too much information. Other times we get directions that are a little bit more like this. Drive out the dirt road, go six-tenths of a mile. Keep a watch on your odometer. When you see the maple tree, you're going to want to turn there. Don't turn at the oak tree. Whatever you do, do not turn at the oak tree. You're going to see the maple tree, not the oak tree, just to be clear. And there's going to be an old, rusted-out, horse-pulled plow that we leave out there for a decoration. Turn there. Now, there's another driveway off of that drive to get to the house. Now, that one's kind of tough to see, mostly because it's not marked and it's covered with brush. So when you're driving, you're going to look out your passenger window and you're going to look for Mount Adams. And when Mount Adams is in the middle of that window, turn left. (laughs) Just don't worry about it. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. And besides, if you end up in the irrigation canal, we'll just bring the tractor out and get you out. It's fine. So, I mean, obviously these directions come from a different place. But the goal is you find out where you're going, right? If you're not familiar with the area or what they're talking about, you become a little bit uncomfortable. I'm never going to find this place. I don't even want to come out. But here's the thing. When it comes to getting to heaven, we need to make sure our directions are dialed in. When it comes to getting to heaven, we need to make sure we know the right way. In fact, too much is at stake for us just to be headed down the road hoping everything is going to work out. Getting to heaven is not just a matter of going out for a drive and see where we end up. The fact is that when the car of your life stops, it's not heaven wherever you end up. Heaven is not defined by whatever happens to be when we end this journey. It's really important because the popular opinion right now is that heaven is wherever you end up after you die, whatever that is for you, wherever you happen to have been going The goal is to sort of live the best life you can live, do no evil, that sort of thing. When your end comes, you're in heaven. For some reason, thinking of eternity, it's okay to think in these terms, even though in every other realm of our life, we would consider that absolutely ridiculous way of thinking. Somebody drives out onto I-5, in the left lane, going too slow probably, and all of a sudden they just stop. What are you stopping for? We're at Dairy Queen. Let's have ice cream. We're in the middle of the freeway. We're not at Dairy Queen. Yeah, I know, but this is what I wanted, where I wanted to go. This is where we ended up, so this is Dairy Queen for me. It may be Dairy Queen for you, but it is not <laughs> Dairy Queen for anybody else or in the realm of reality. The fact is, you can argue about what you want life to be like and what everything you want to be like, but 
if you want to get to Dairy Queen, you have to actually drive to Dairy Queen. And I'm not saying Dairy Queen is heaven. And they didn't pay for this spot in the sermon. They wouldn't have. But isn't it funny how when it comes to something so simple, that makes perfect sense. Of course, you have to drive Dairy Queen. And then when it comes to heaven, you say, well, you can drive whichever way you want. Where you spend eternity is pretty important, I think. And why did we just decide we can go on and on just in any, any old way we want, just sort of hope that the best is going to work out for us in the end? So this morning in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, I want us to get good directions. Good directions on how to get to heaven. Look with me at verse 11 of Ephesians 1. How to get to heaven. This is, I'm going to read verse 11 again. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I'm going to stop there. So the first thing about getting to a place like heaven is this. You have to be invited. How to get to heaven? First, God decides He wants us there. God decides He wants us there. Look at it. In Him we have obtained an inheritance according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. How do you get to heaven? First of all, God decides He wants us there. This is really important. Look with me at Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Jesus is going to talk about the Father and explain to this this to us through a couple of stories, parables we call them. Luke chapter 15, Jesus was hanging out, and the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him. Jesus had the tax collectors and sinners all drawing near to Him. I don't know if you know how this goes, but tax collectors... Uh, were looked down on as rebels and traitors against Israel because they were collecting money for Rome, and sinners were, well, I don't think that requires explanation. They were people known as sinners, scarlet letter on their shirt. Everybody knew, oh, that's a sinner, we can tell. Look at them. The Pharisees and scribes, that is the religious elite, the, the snooty to and that's a theological term, they said this, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They say it with a sneer, and they look down their long religious noses. Now, today, nowadays, it's not that big a deal. You can eat with somebody. If I saw you eating with somebody at the restaurant who had a bad reputation, it wouldn't bother me. I don't know, whatever. But back then, that was a way of almost condoning them. When you ate with somebody back in those days, it was a way of saying, I'm on their team. I'm with them. What they do, I do. I'm down with whatever they're into. So it was a way of giving an affirmation, an extension of acceptance. If you didn't like how somebody lived, you didn't eat with them. So Jesus was being accused of associating with sinners. Jesus wanted to correct their misconceptions. He felt he was not being associated closely enough with these sinners, and he wanted to make sure how much everybody knew exactly how much he loved these sinners. I think this is fantastic. These are stories you've heard before. Verse 3 of Luke 15. Have you found it? If you haven't found it, I'll tell you the story by reading it. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, I'm so, I don't have a hundred sheep. I have no idea. If you told me I had a hundred sheep, I don't know what I'd do. The odds of me only losing one are so slim. <laughs> it's like, I lost a hundred sheep, God. I don't know what to do. If, if you had, okay, back to the story. I'm sorry. My ADD is showing up. All right. If, if anyone lost one of his sheep, don't you leave the 99 in the open country 
and go after the one that is lost until you find it? And when he has found it, he puts it on his shoulders and he rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and says, Look, I found the sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So Jesus says, I want you to understand how God works here. The sheep wanders off. He has no intention of being found. He doesn't want to be found. He is not looking to be found. He has found grass. He has found water. The last thing he is interested in is the shepherd. The shepherd is the one who has gone out and found the sheep. And then what did the shepherd do when he found the sheep? Put him on his shoulders. Why? He still didn't want to come. And the whole way, the, the shepherd is rejoicing over this sheep, this rebellious, disobedient, walking away, getting lost sheep. The shepherd is ecstatic. One thing that cannot describe this shepherd in any way, shape, or form is grumpy. The guy's a happy little guy, skipping around, finding his lost sheep. He loves it. In fact, he says he gets, so, he gets so jazzed up about finding this one sheep, he doesn't even care about the 99 religious people. He got no joy from them. But to go out on purpose to find a sheep who didn't want to be found and actually got found sort of kicking and screaming, he's just pumped up about it. And, God, and Jesus is saying, I know the Father, and this is what he's like. He likes finding lost sheep. Gets them all excited. He throws a party. Look at the next story he tells in verse 8 of Luke chapter 15. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I love this because he describes us as rebellious sinners, as sheep. What does something sheep have that a coin does not have? A brain. I know you're thinking about a lot of things. Yeah, but... So we kind of look at the sheep, well, yeah, well, the sheep, if, you, if the shepherd would have offered him good grass or maybe some good food or used the right tone in his voice, the sheep might have come back. How much will a coin come back to you when you call it? Have you tried it? Have you lost something? And you call out to the coin, here, little coin, here, little coin. It's never going to come. It's a coin. It can't crawl. It's got no arms. And, and so Jesus here now takes it to the next level and says, now, if you thought maybe you had the ability to come crawling back to me and make me want to come and get you, you're a coin. You have no ability whatsoever to crawl back to me. If I don't move the desk out and reach down and pick you up out of the dust, you will sit there forever. And Jesus is saying, this is like the father, and when he finds the coin, he doesn't go, you stinky coin. He gets the coin and decides, let's have a party, I found a coin. I mean, this is the, the nature of the Father who is seeking to redeem and reach out to the lost. He, he loves it. He's ecstatic about it. So we have a lost sheep, and we have a lost coin, and then we have what, one last parable he tells. This one, of course, is one you're very familiar with. We call it often in your Bible, and your Bible may say the parable of the prodigal son. That's fine. I don't know anywhere else in life we use the term prodigal. Parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the what? Lost son. 
Jesus wants us to see all three of these together because all three of these are saying the same message. I'm going to read it because there's no way to tell this story better than Jesus did. Jesus said this, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and that person sent him into his field to feed the pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. In that pig feeding trough, what, how do we describe the son? He's lost. He's lost. So if we already know something of God from the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, the father certainly is at home furious that that son took his stuff, isn't he? If I see this son on my land again, I will let him know what for. Okay, he can come back as long as he comes back groveling and owning his business. He better confess to everything he ever did, and he's going to pay me back. He's going to work his tail off. Now, is that possible after talking the first two parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin? What do we know about this father? Oh, man, I can't wait till he comes back because then I get to do what I love doing. I get to find a lost son. That's what I'm into. That's what I do for fun. I find lost people. And so he's out on his deck every single day. Man, I hope a lost son shows up today because I get to do what I'm into. He's ecstatic. The son, verse 17, came to himself and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I'm going to perish here with hunger. I'm going to arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So the son is what? He is hungry. The son wants something to eat. He decides if he has some sort of relationship with the father, he may in fact get a meal. Has the son come to his senses? No, because he still thinks all he needs is food. He's completely missed the point. So we have to understand when the son got crawled his way out of that pigsty and ran to the father, he was not seeking the father. What was he seeking? The father's bread. He still hadn't figured it out because this story is not about the son. This story is about the father. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father while he was still a long way off. His father felt compassion on him and did not give him what he wanted. What did the boy want? Notice he didn't run into the pantry and get bread and wine. The father knew what the son needed. Even the son in this moment doesn't know. The father saw him, and he ran to him and embraced and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to him, Bring me a robe, bring me a ring, put shoes on his feet. He is my son. God decides he wants us with him because that's what he's like. He seeks us out even when we don't even have a clue what, he, what, what we needed. 
The son, until he finally meets the father because the father ran to him, was still convinced all he needed was a warm meal. And the father says, no, you need me. I am the one you have lost, and I have found you, and you are my son. The lost son destroyed his inheritance. The father did not want his inheritance returned. The father did not want his money back. The father wanted his son. And why is Jesus telling us this story? Because he knows what the Father is like. He's only spent all of eternity with him. He says, I know what the Father is like. I want to tell you these stories so you would know what he's like. You have no idea what he's like. You've, you've misunderstood him. The Father is seeking lost people because he loves to do it. So with that in mind, look back at Ephesians 1 verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. In Him, the one who ran to us and put a robe on us and a ring on our finger and shoes on our feet and threw a party. The Father with Christ have yearned to put together a plan so that we could be His again, so that we could be reunited with Him. It was God's idea first. It was God's plan first. It was God's wisdom first. And it's God's power that's going to work this out for us. This is what we need to learn and understand about God deciding us, excuse me, God deciding He wants us in heaven with Him. This is how I might sum this up. And you say, well, you could have summed it up 10 minutes ago, Greg. It doesn't work that way. In regards to heaven, we aren't trying to convince God to let us into heaven. As much as you might think that's how it works, you're not trying to convince God to let you into heaven. He's trying to convince us to come. See, we get this all messed up in our head, like somehow we're the ones trying to seek Him. The one doing the seeking is Him. And nine times out of ten, if you're anything like me, when I am seeking God, it's not, I'm not actually seeking Him. I'm trying to get His stuff out of His hand. I'm hungry or I'm thirsty. God, give me this, that, or the other thing. He says, you're my son. Come to me. He's trying to convince us to come to Him. And our rebellious hard hearts resist. How could we possibly hope to get to heaven if we have to be convinced to go there? All right, let's look at the next section. How to get to heaven. Number two, Christ gives us hope by making the way to heaven. First thing we said was God decides He wants us there. The second thing is Christ gives us hope by making the way to get there. Look with me at verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 1. So, we who were the first to hope in Christ would be the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Him. So Christ is the one who gives us hope by giving us a way to get to God in heaven. God is the one who uh, works all things to His plan so that we might find God and a way to heaven in Christ Himself. So I want us to understand something about this way to heaven that Christ has made. Put on your thinking camps a little bit. The way to heaven in Christ has to be a way to heaven that rebellious sinners would go on. Jesus did not make a way to heaven for the obedient righteous. Jesus came to seek and save rebellious sinners. 
not obedient righteous people. And whenever Jesus talks about the obedient righteous, you can see in parentheses, according to your terms, what he is saying is the way to heaven has to be a way for rebellious sinners to get to heaven, not, a rebel, not obedient righteous people. So, for example, if there's a big sign on a pathway that said, this way to God, follow this path to heaven, all of the obedient righteous people would be a path to walk on. What are the rebellious sinners saying? Who needs God? Why in the world would anybody put a sign on a path on how to get to God? Well, I don't need God. I'm God. Don't tell me how to get there. See, that's how rebellious sinners operate. The, so the way to get to God has to be a, a way made for people like us who are rebellious sinners. I don't need God. What's he got to offer? Those religious people could go marching up the religion path. Have fun with that. Be good. Hope that works out. Look with me at Romans 1.16. I'm going to look at a couple of very familiar verses and look at the way that Christ has made for rebellious sinners like us to actually get to know God and go to heaven. Romans 1.16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, uh, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation. So the way to heaven, in general terms, is the gospel. The message is good news. How do you get to heaven? The gospel. And Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed that this is the way to get to heaven. Why would the gospel be shameful? Because a dignified way to get to heaven would be a path marked out. Do these ten good things. Don't do any of these ten naughty things. And go to church three times out of four in a, in a month. I don't know, something like that. You can come up with your own... Uh, code, I guess. Most religious people do. That was impolite. Intentionally so. Okay, moving on. Um, 1 Corinthians 15. What is the gospel? Let's look at it. 1 Corinthians 15.3. This is the gospel. What is that path? What is the path marked out for rebellious sinners who say they don't need God? Here it is. Paul saying, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. First thing we discover is not to be ashamed that this is the way that God decided to find lost people is the gospel. And then we find out something scandalous. He died for sinners. So when you had two groups of people, you had the rebels who said, I don't need God, and all the religious people who went marching up the this is the way to God path, Jesus says, I'm going to die for the sinners. I want to save rebels who understand their need of salvation. You say, well, God dies for sinners because uh, perhaps within them there is some potential, maybe he sees some inner religious spark that they're going to turn into really good um, religious people. Now let's look at Romans 5.8. I would say this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, but I've discovered I keep saying that about too many verses, so I got too many. Romans 5.8. It's unbelievable. I mean, the problem is we've memorized the verse, and so we, we've, we've lost the fact that it is actually stunning. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, He died for us. 
when you read a verse like that, you should say, who does things like this? See, what we would do is we would make a way for religious people to, get, to top off on their righteousness so then they could slip into heaven. And Jesus says, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to die while you're still in full, all-out rebellion against me. And we say, Jesus, I'm not sure if that's the smartest way to go. I'm not going to tell you how to save the world. And Jesus, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were running away from God as hard and fast as we could, he dies for us. This is the gospel. This is the way that we can find hope in Jesus, that he will extend hope to rebels like us. You say, well, how in the world could we possibly find Christ if we're rebelling against him? Well, let me put it this way. If we are in rebellion and we're running away from Christ as fast as we can, and we look at a sign that says, act this way, do this stuff to get to heaven, and we say, yeah, no thanks. And we say, who needs God? And somebody comes to us and they say, you need to find God, have hope in your life, to find hope for eternity, to have a relationship with the one who created you. And maybe in us there's a sense of, you know, that's probably right. I mean, it's built into us. The Bible tells us eternity is bound up in the heart of a man, so there's a sense there that I'm missing something and God is it. You know what a rebel says? I'm starting to like rebels more. You know what, God, you're right. I need, to, I need to know you and all that stuff. That's how rebels talk, real sacrilegious and rebellious. I'll tell you what, God, you come and get me, fine. I'm not coming to you. You come get me. And what does God say? You bet. You bet. I'll come and get you. I will come right there. I will come right there. Why don't you come and get me? And God says, absolutely, I'll come and get you. Remember the lost sheep? He put a sign up, lost sheep, bring them to the pen. No, he went out and he trudged around the dark looking for that sheep who couldn't give a rip. Same thing with the coin. He's moving furniture. And the lost son who still didn't have a clue what he really needed, the father says, you're my son again. Bread we have, but you are my son. God says, I will come and find you. I will make you a righteous rebel. I will take your sin and exchange it for the righteousness of Christ himself. The righteous rebel lives by faith that God will come running to me. The one who needs God in their rebellion will say, I don't need to to find out how to earn my way to God. I'm going to trust in faith that God is going to come running for me because I can't explain it. He loves finding lost people. And he loves rebels. He loves changing our hearts and making us sons. Christ gives us hope by making a way there because we say, come and get me, and he says, you bet, and he came, and he died, and he rose again, and he says, I'm with you. How do you get to heaven? God decides he wants us there. Christ gives us hope by making the way there. Last question we might ask, ask is this, how do we know when we get there? That's a polite way of saying, how do we know when we die? God won't change his mind. How do we know when we die, God won't change his mind? Number three, the Spirit gives us certainty we will be there. The Spirit gives us certainty we will be there. Let's read again in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised 
Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Now, I want to draw your attention to something from the Old Testament. You can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. But back in Exodus 23, Exodus 23, yeah, that's way back. That's the second book of the Bible. If you found Genesis, you're almost home. One more book, and it's Exodus. Exodus 23, the people of Israel were leaving Egypt, road trip, and God made this promise to the people of Israel as they were leaving. Exodus 23, verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. Listen, for my name is in him. So this angel is not just an angel that you might find on a Valentine's Day card. This angel is the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, the Son. And the Son, the second person of the Trinity, has come to lead Israel to the promised land. His name, the name of God, is in him. So the angel, before the people of the Lord here, is God himself, his presence with his people, leading them to their rest, their rest in the promised land. So God leads his people to go to the rest if what? It says right there, do not rebel against him. He will not pardon your sin. If you obey, I will lead you into your rest, into the promised land. That's kind of a bummer deal for rebels. Because now all of a sudden we can't rebel. Well, this is the thing. What we discover about the Old Testament, it's a long story showing us that we can't pull off obeying. And maybe you can. Uh, I'm pretty good at obeying for about 20 minutes. And uh, you say, well, most sermons are longer than that, so what are you doing? And um, I'll quote one pastor. He said, the problem is I can't get through a prayer or a sermon without sinning. So I'm with him. Look at the Holy Spirit in us. The Spirit seals us. So in Exodus 23, we see God with His presence, with His people, the name of God leading them, saying, I will take you to your rest if you obey me. Now let's compare that with the Holy Spirit in our life. Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit in our life in John 14. He said this in verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He said, believe. Trust me. I am going to make a way for you to get to heaven. I'm going to make a way for you to be with the Father. Believe in God and believe in me. And then he continues on in verse 6 of John 14 and says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus says, believe in me. I am the way to God. Jesus is the way to God. It's his act of redemption and forgiveness that cleanses us of our sins. And so Jesus says, believe in me and follow me. I'm going to take you to glory. That sounds real similar to the people of Israel. The Son leading us to salvation. John continues in verse 12 of John 14. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So Jesus says, I'm going to lead you to the rest. I'm going to go there first. I'm going to prepare a way. And while I'm gone, you're going to continue my work on planet Earth. You're going to make disciples, continuing to call lost people into salvation through the Son. 
And while I'm gone, Jesus says in verse 16, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. So Jesus says this, I will t- I'll talk to the Father, and He's going to send you a helper, the Spirit, and He will be with you how long? Forever. So in the Old Testament, God was going to lead them to His rest, and He said, I will lead you as long as you follow me and do what? Obey. How'd that work out? Have you read the Old Testament? Not a happy ending. Then he comes to us and he says, better idea. I shouldn't say it that way, but that's, to make my point, I'll say it that way. He says, I got an idea. I'm going to give you my spirit. He will have my name. He will lead you to the promised land, and he will not stay with you only if you obey. He will stay with you if I obey. And I was like, wait, what, what are you talking about? He said, yeah, as long as I obey, he'll stay with you. And how long will that be? Forever. And all the rebels in the room went, yes, this program I can do because I don't have to obey because I'm lousy at obeying. I'm horrible. The only time I obey is if you tell me to do something wrong. I can nail that. And he says, no, listen. I will lead you to your rest, and he will be with you forever as long as I obey. And Jesus said what on the cross? It's finished. The obedience is done. It is all finished. The presence of God is with his people forever since he already obeyed. And so we look forward to a guaranteed rest. The Spirit will never leave because the the work of Christ is already finished. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit, we're told in Ephesians chapter 1. It's a security. We know for certain with the Spirit that God owns us and we have an ownership stake in the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit is our down payment on our inheritance, the Bible says in Ephesians 1. The Spirit of God is our down payment on our inheritance. We will never lose this down payment. When you buy a house, you put an escrow payment down, don't you? You bet you put money into an escrow account. You say, I promise to buy the house, and I choose not to. You get to keep the money. Well, that's the term that's used here in Ephesians 1. The Holy Spirit is our escrow payment. And when the house is bought, do you lose the escrow payment? No. So when we get to heaven, we don't lose God just because we gained heaven. We gain God. Let me, let me suggest this. If God is our down payment, what does our inheritance look like? The down payment is God himself. What could our inheritance possibly be if the down payment is God himself? It means it's going to be pretty awesome. In fact, Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 8. It is so awesome that once we get there, all the suffering we endured will seem like nothing. How do we get to heaven? God decides He wants us there. Christ gives us hope by giving us the way to get there, and the Spirit gives us certainty that we will be there. All right, over the last couple of weeks, we've gone through this section, the eulogy, verses 3 through 14. Let me just review quickly, if you don't mind, some of the things that we're promised in this eulogy of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Number one, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing there is. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing there is. Number two, God chose us to make us holy, righteous in Christ. Number three, God calls us His children, adopted through Jesus into the family of God. Number four, 
He has forgiven us for everything we have done or ever will do. Number five, he told us all about his plan and his purpose to bring things into unity under Jesus. He told us his whole plan. Number six, he gives us an inheritance, the kingdom of God itself. And number seven, the down payment on our inheritance, a down payment we will never lose, is God himself. Now, the point of this eulogy, we have to understand, the point of this eulogy in verses 3 through 14 is that we would be overwhelmed with God's abundant generosity toward us. That's the whole point. That's the whole reason he wrote it. And we have to see it with eyes of faith. We have to trust that what God is saying here is true. And because we have to see it with eyes of of faith, typically our response to this overwhelming generosity of God is a little bit muted and understated. We generally will say something like this. You know, that sounds great. Um, And in fact, that will be great. That'll be great. When that happens, that'll that'll be awesome. That'll be off the chain. Uh, But you know what? Just be honest, I got a lot going on right now, so that's awesome there, and when that, that'll be cool. But today sucks, so how does that work? And you say, well, I don't think like that. Well, you're not a rebel yet. We'll keep working on the rebellion. You'll get there. It's how rebels think. Heaven sounds great. I got Monday coming. What I want us to wrestle with just for the last few minutes of this message is the point of his flood of generosity in Ephesians chapter 3 is actually to reframe how we think about today. That's the whole point. He wants to reframe how we see the world around us, how we see the difficulty we face, how we see the relationships we're working with in our life. So this is a a silly way of thinking about it, but but I'm kind of silly, so it works out. So have you ever found yourself sitting by a campfire? And we live in Oregon. If you haven't, I don't know if you get to stay, honestly. Um, So you're sitting by the campfire. It's cold. You built a fire. So usually what we're doing is we're bundled up, sitting by a campfire, trying to keep warm. One side is warm, one side is freezing, and you kind of rotate. Here's the thing that's funny about sitting by a campfire when you're freezing or when you're chilled. You went there on purpose. You packed up your belongings, you packed up your food, you grabbed your shelter, a trailer, a tent, whatever it is. You went there on purpose and then unpacked and then built a fire and sat by it. And, and, and the fact is, um, we all get that. It's relaxing. You get out in the woods, you breathe the fresh mountain air, and, and you turn off the phone, and you sort of rest and chill out for a little. You turn, the, turn life off for a little bit, and we understand that. But I think we would approach sitting by that campfire differently if you're sitting there, a little bit chilled, but still keeping warm. If all of a sudden we told you, you can never go home. You're home fell off the cliff. It's gone. This is your home now, this campfire. See, my point is, one of the reasons we can sort of enjoy a moment like a campfire with smoke in our eyes and an uncomfortable chair, we would never sit in that chair in any other situation. And number one, we only sit in the dark. It is so nasty. We'd never sit in the light. The only reason we deal with these discomforts is the fact that in a couple of days, I'm going to go home. I'm going to shower in my own shower. I'm going to sleep in my own bed. In fact, I bet you most of us at the end of a camping trip like that, we lay down, and what do you say? Man, it's sure nice to sleep in my own bed. So what happens in that? We can sit out by and have these discomforts because we know it's just for a little bit. 
because we know the comforts that we're going to soon enjoy at home are going to far outweigh the little chills and the discomforts and the aches and pains. We're going to go home at the end of the camping trip. In fact, we can actually enjoy and call recreation inconveniences and discomforts that we experience on purpose. In fact, inconveniences and experiences that a lot of people around the world would be happy to free, be free from in their daily life when they're cooking their meals and keeping warm over an open wood fire. Ephesians 3 through 14 wants us to see this. We're going to go home at the end of this little trip. We're going to go to comforts unimaginable. We can trust someone as awesome as Jesus that we can live with joy and, in fact, even enjoyment of the chills of this present life and the discomforts of this present life because one day we're going to go home and sleep in our own bed. Remember, you've never slept in your own bed. You've never actually been to your own home as a believer in Christ. All of this, everything you have, regardless of the life that you're accustomed to, Everything we have here is the most rustic of camping trips compared to the inheritance we anticipate. If we can live in joy in this life with its beauty as well as with its difficulty in light of the glory of the home that we anticipate, it's going to change how we interact in the relationships around us. There's three relationships that Paul talks about in Ephesians 5. I'm going to touch on them very quickly in how learning to live in light of glory changes the relationships we have today. Look at Ephesians 5.22. We'll do this very quickly, so no worries. I'm going to read Ephesians 5.22 through 25. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ excuse me, loved the church and gave himself up for her. So what Paul calls us to in marriage, he calls husbands and wives together to characterize our marriages together as marriages of love, submission, and mutual sacrifice for one another. And that, ex that sounds extraordinarily romantic when you're watching it on a movie or on a Hallmark television uh, special. But in real life, two broken sinners fighting the flesh every single day, how am I supposed to submit to my spouse when they're not worthy of it? How can I love my spouse when the resentment inside is real? It's not pretend. It's not semi -re It's real stuff. How can I sacrifice for my spouse when I know they will never sacrifice for me? Paul wasn't ruling out an idea of seeking an, an ideal, loving, joyful marriage characterized peace and characterized by love and service. But Paul was not an idealist. He had the real scars of, of hard uh, life here on his body and on his soul. He had been rejected. He had experienced rejection. The point is this. You can't pull off Marriage the way Bible describes it, if the payoff to your life is here. This is only possible if you look forward to another home. Living the way a God describes relationships, mutual submission and love and sacrifice, is only possible if I know a day is coming where everything will be made right. 
And in that, in that, I can respond to my spouse with grace. I can respond to my spouse with love, with mercy, submission, and sacrifice. If I know one day I will live in the real, present warmth of God Himself, I can offer unqualified love to my spouse. I don't think this isn't, this isn't fatalistic. It isn't dark. In fact, what it becomes is our future with God forever becomes the fuel for loving uh, sacrificial marriages today. We have a better hope than simply having a happy marriage. We have a glory we're looking forward to. Okay, look at chapter 6, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Just one more time. Children, okay, I'm sorry, that's terrible. Okay. So the, so the same truth applies to the relationship between children and their parents. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What do children tend to do? Disobey. What do fathers tend to do? Overreact. The father says, if you wouldn't disobey, I wouldn't overreact. And the children say, if you wouldn't overreact, I wouldn't disobey. Jesus says you have a better home and you will be there soon. Why does your child frustrate you, Dad? We're going home. It's not the end of the world. Children, Christ is coming and you have a better home to look forward to in Christ. Perhaps you can go without whatever disobedience is going to gain you today. Verse 5 of chapter 6, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants, as Christ. Do you work for a living? Work as though you work for Christ. Why? Because He is, he is giving you a kingdom, and you are co-heir of the kingdom of God with Him. Work for your boss, not for gain, not for promotion, not for success or for significance, but work for your boss as though you work for Christ. He is, in fact, going to pay you his kingdom. We are going to receive the kingdom of God in Christ forever. And Jesus says, work as though you work for Christ. Verse 8 says this, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Did you get overlooked for a promotion? Was the raise unfair if there was one? Were you wrongly written up? So now you're going to exact your revenge on your employer by taking supplies, working slow, taking long lunches, talking about, bad about your supervisor behind his back. Jesus said, you don't need to do that. I got you covered. Work like you are working for me, and I promise you, when you come into your inheritance, we're going to be totally square. Everything will be squared away. What Paul does in Ephesians is show us that God has done for us so much, not so that we will say heaven is great, I look forward to it there. He wants us to be so moved by the inheritance he has given us that it actually renovates how we approach the people we love today. That we're so moved by what he's going to do for us in eternity that it changes how we interact with our spouse and our children and even our employer. He wants the fuel for our life here to be the hope we have in Jesus. 
He wants to have love and hope and mercy from Christ so that we can offer it to the people around us. Heaven does us no good if it is way out there. A robust view of the greatness of heaven ought to change today. How we approach our relationships, how we approach our work, even how we approach our parenting.